I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. First of all, I want to thank everyone who went to the Instagram page, which is Recovery Bites Pod, and answered the question of who you would like as a guest on the show. We've gotten a lot of people requesting a lot of amazing speakers, and one of them is going to be a guest for today. We are going to be listening to my interview with Tabitha Farrar, and I'm telling you, wait till you hear her voice. It is a powerful voice and she has a lot to say. So I'm just going to jump right into the episode. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really thrilled to have our guest on for today, Tabitha Farrar. Tabitha, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad to have you. Tabitha, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? You do a lot of things. You're somebody that wears a lot of hats. So if you could just let the listeners know exactly who you are, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, my name is Tabitha. I um, recovered from an eating disorder, anorexia. I had for about 12 years. Um I recovered entirely without any professional or otherwise help and a little bit um, differently, shall we put it, than I think what the traditional methods of recovery especially were back then. Um, And I did go on to just then start to live happily ever after, but I did always blog about my recovery experience and my thoughts on anorexia and eating disorders and from that I started to get people asking me to help them and so I started to do that just on the side of my other job Um, and then that grew and after a while I went into recovery coaching full-time for a while. Um, I have always created a lot of free resources for people with eating disorders so podcasts, blogs, uh, YouTube channel. Um, and I've written four books on eating disorder recovery and have a fifth one in the works now. Um, and now I still do recovery coaching. I do it part-time though. I have my own farm, a horse boarding facility, and my full-time job is actually looking after horses. But I still really enjoy the recovery coaching work that I do. I really enjoy working with people with eating disorders. They are intelligent, determinated sorts of people. Um, and I enjoy, I, I enjoy sometimes isn't the right word, but I, I think it is true that I do enjoy trying to just make change in the eating disorder industry and the way people think about eating disorders and the way people think about recovery. 
I'm wondering, and I don't know why I just went to this, but with all the questions that people ask you, because I was going over some of your YouTube videos and you just sit there and people write in, tap, type in questions and you answer them. Is there a particular theme that stands out the most of what people are asking or is it all over in every direction? I'd say it's all over in every direction. Um, the themes that do tend to arise tend to depend on where people are at in their own sort of accepting of recovery stage. And a lot of the sort of uh, cluster of questions that I might get from people that are not completely what I'd call in recovery yet are really sort of evading doing what they deep down know that they really have to do, which is basically eat food and gain weight. And it's always the weight gain, really, that's the thing that people are trying to evade. Isn't there any other way that I can do this? Surely, if I just go to a load of talk therapy, then that's going to get me recovered. And then I don't have to do the really scary thing, which is eating without restriction and gaining weight. Or surely, if I do X, Y, Z, then I can get recovered without doing the really scary thing. And I'm just always very blunt with people. <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> By the way, you are, and I love it, a, a, a listener or, or somebody who was watching, and I, I am completely messing this up, but someone typed into you something like, you know, what are your thoughts on relapse? And you were like, uh, don't fucking do it. I was like, <laughs> yep, that's pretty much the right answer. So yes, you're definitely straight to the point, which by the way, is really necessary. You're straight to the point. You're also compassionate and you're funny. And that's a really beautiful combination when somebody is being vulnerable. They don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be lectured. And so you, you have a combination that I think allows people to be a little bit more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that historically people with eating disorders are really underestimated um, in terms of their intelligence, in terms of their bravery and determination, and in terms of how much they can deal with and how much they can handle. I think people with eating disorders are often sort of cheated with kid gloves as if like, well, you can't say the wrong thing because that might trigger them. And I'm like, it's a choice to get triggered. Like there's no such thing as saying the wrong thing. If someone wants to get triggered, they're going to get triggered and that's up to them. And so I think that the less that we tiptoe around people with eating disorders, the more that we actually give them the space to step up to do what they need to do and the confidence to do what they need to do. And they need to be told that they are able to do what they need to do because that's the only way out of it. And I think that anything else is actually doing a disservice to a person with an eating disorder. Often, um, I have clients or maybe people write to me who saying to me, I kind of want to do this. I kind of want to do the unrestricted eating thing. I kind of, I'm almost there. I, I'm really, but my, my, insert whatever therapist, dietitian, whomever it is, is telling me, oh, be careful. You know, it might freak you out too much. And, you know, we, be careful. You don't know if you can handle it. And that just makes me want to hit my head against the wall because it's like people with eating disorders are some of the most strongest resourceful people that you'll ever meet. It's just part of that genetic makeup, I think. And so don't underestimate them. Well, it also, you know, two things come to my mind. One puts a preempted fear 
into somebody's mind. And two, it also villainizes waking. It it so so you that's a that's a really powerful thing if a client is saying I mean a, a clinician or a dietitian. And it happens all the damn time. And the reason it happens is because we're in a culture where there's this cultural belief that weight gain is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to a person. We are in live in a culture that fears weight gain. And our treatment providers are part of that culture. So a lot of the time you've got eating disorder treatment providers who have not addressed their own fear of weight gain. They have not actually sorted that out. And it comes out of their mouths when they're talking to clients, which is awful for the client. (laughs) And it's also the sort of thing that you just think, well, that can't be true, but it's happening all the time. And it's more often the case than not. I, I wish I could say back to you, come on, Tabitha, that's not true. It is true. It is, I mean, it is a problem in our in our field, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you get people looking to, to you to talk about. Let, let me let me say this another way. I have a few people that I'm working with right now that I am encouraging to go into treatment. I think at this point, it's something that, you know, they need more support, they need medical, they need whatever. And they're giving me all the reasons in the world why they can do it on their own. They don't need to go back into, or they don't need to go into treatment. I'm wondering, because you say you didn't go into treatment, you did it on your own, what that was like. And before you answer, I'm going to say what my experience was like. And the interesting thing is, is that I have no idea if my, my recovery would have been any different. 30 years ago, when I had my eating disorder, they did not have residential programs. So all they did for me was take me out of college. And I went home to do it on my own. There's a part of me that says that was the most excruciating thing I've ever experienced. And I do not recommend anybody do it on their own if they have the ability to go into treatment. By the way, we don't know what my outcome would have been had I gone to treatment. So I just think it's an interesting question. Do you have people say to you, well, you did it without treatment, so I can as well? Absolutely. And dependent on the person, I might say to them, all right, then prove it, do it. And a lot of people will do just that. Um, Just yesterday, however, I told the client, you have to go to treatment right now. Start making calls, go to the first one that will accept you. Because she'd been trying to do it on her own for too long. And it's like, time's up. It's not happening. You're not making changes. You need to, you you absolutely have to get yourself into a residential program. And also, um, I think that there's, there's no one single answer to that question. And so for me, in the way that I did recovery, the type of person that I am, um, I'm not sure that treatment would have necessarily been particularly successful for me. How? I don't know. It might have been. I didn't go. So I can't really comment. But, but I also can comment because especially um, how that was, oh gosh, 20 years ago, I guess, would be when I'd be going into treatment. So it would have been worse than it is now. Um, 
some of the things that I know worked in my favor when I was doing recovery is because I had never been into any sort of treatment, like not let alone residential or anything like that. I had never even spoken to anybody about my eating disorder. But because of that, I didn't have any preconceptions as to what recovery should look like. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to binge your way into recovery. I didn't know that that was frowned on. That's exactly what I did. It just seemed like common sense to me was that I was starving all the time. And that was probably because I hadn't allowed myself to eat enough for 12 years. So it actually made sense to me. I'm going to eat a huge amount of food to get myself out of this. I think if I had been in treatment at the time, they would have absolutely told me that's awful. You can't do that. You're developing binge eating disorder and all that crap. And so a lot of the time now, the questions people ask me is still on the whole binge topic. I have the urge to binge. Is, is that okay? Which I'm going to be like, absolutely. Like most of us binge in recovery. It's a, a central, it's a biological reaction to restriction. It's the restriction that's the issue. You know, if you just allow the binge to happen and don't try and compensate for it, ultimately your body is going to work itself out and the urge to binge will decrease and then stop as you reach nutritional rehabilitation. But that's because they've been told binging is bad. And I often then have to work through this with people undoing a lot of that, a lot of that information that they've been told about binging and how they and why they shouldn't do it and things like that whereas for me I was just completely ignorant to all of that it 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 just actually so I was able to follow common sense more than people who have been in treatment for a very long time are sometimes able to do now in terms of things like residential treatment there absolutely is a very important place for that and residential treatment won't get a person fully recovered. What it does is it stops them killing themselves. Like it will stop them dying. And that is, that's got a place, a really important place in this whole spectrum of eating disorder treatments. And I think that um, I see sort of two categories of people um, in the eating disorder, quote unquote, recovery field. And those are people that want to recover and people that aren't there yet. And if you're someone that's not there yet, you're not going to do recovery on your own. You need to be in treatment. That's the thing that's going to stop you getting worse. And if you are somebody that wants to recover, you might have to start off in treatment. And then once you have got some degree of nutritional rehabilitation, once you've been kickstarted, shall we say, it's when you come out of that residential place that recovery really starts for you. Because you can't do neural rewiring in a residential um, facility. You can do some aspects of it, but neural rewiring happens in the process of making decisions. That's when our brain learns. It's in the process of making decisions. And the beauty of a residential treatment center is that you don't get to make decisions. You can't decide not to eat. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's why it's there. That's why it's helpful. And that's why it will get you some degree of nutritional rehabilitation. But when you come out of there, that's when the proper full-on neural rewiring starts. And so I also get people say to me, I really want to do recovery, but I'm in residential. And now I'm worried that because I'm in residential treatment, I can't do the neural rewiring part. So therefore, I'm not going to fully recover. And is this a waste of time? And I say, no, it's absolutely not. 
First of all, there's loads of time. You're going to have all the time to do all the neural rewiring in the world when you get out of there. And second of all, there is some neural rewiring you can start doing within that. And that is you stepping above and beyond, actually not giving any resistance when you want to about what you're supposed to be eating asking, can I have a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, actually voicing when you're hungry and saying, I'd actually like to eat some more than what you're giving me. That's huge. And that's massive neural rewiring happening there. And all of those things can happen within a residential treatment program. And so it's, it's always going to be dependent on exactly what that person needs. And some people absolutely do need to go into residential treatment. And some people absolutely don't. And they really can just kick themselves off and start eating at home. But I think that the thing, what I did, and I really did tell myself this, is I gave myself the, all right, I'm going to do this. But if I don't do it, I am putting myself in treatment. And I was very strict with myself at that because I knew I'd just wasted 12 years and I wasn't going to waste any more time. And I think that the mistake that some people make is they say, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this on my own. And then nothing happens and nothing changes. And they sit there for months in Groundhog Day. And every day is the sort of tomorrow I'm going to do this. And I always say, give yourself a really short period of time, like a week. And if you haven't made drastic changes within a week, off you go. Book yourself in. And that's the deal that you have to make with yourself. Well, it reminds me of you. It sounds like you have a strong drive trait. Like you're, you're a driven person. You see what you want, which worked against you in the eating disorder. It all went into your eating disorder. And it's as if you swung the pendulum to the other side and said, I'm going to now use this drive and motivation towards recovery. Absolutely. This is why everybody has the ability to recover. We all, all have it within us. Whatever we used in the eating disorder, whatever I used in my eating disorder, I also used in my recovery, hands down. The other thing I was thinking of is when I used to be a clinical director at residential programs and partners, family members, roommates would be like, in family group, would be like, I can't wait till my loved one leaves this program and they're recovered. And I'm like, oh, good Lord, you have been horribly misguided. This is the beginning. I always looked at like residential as like triage. We're like stopping the bleeding. So then you can go out in the world and start the recovery process. And also what you're talking about with the neurobiology, neuroplasticity has to be done over and over and over again for us to create new brain grooves. So that's why there's so much that has to be done out in the world, which is why it's frightening. Part of the eating disorder recovery is, is you know, constantly showing up in social engage, engagements if you have social anxiety and the eating disorder was was protecting you from it. Part of it is standing up for yourself and maybe walking away from somebody who is not good in your life. But these are things that have to be done over and over again. I think what happens in residential, hopefully, is there's a change in brain grooves with the meal plan, you know, cessation of purging, binging, whatever it is. But that's just 
the beginning. And I always remember, I remember so many people saying that, oh, I can't wait till they finish and they're, they're recovered. Mm-hmm. Not like that. No. And, and the other thing I think that's important that happens in residential is that degree of nutritional rehabilitation. There are not many of us, um, there are some, so I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but most of us, what we do, I mean, there are not many of us that go from our lowest point in terms of nutritional depletion and go bam into unrestricted eating and bam into recovery. What happens with most of us is we stagger ourselves up to do a degree of nutritional rehabilitation, not fully nutritional rehabilitated, but you know, we stagger ourselves up a little bit and then at some point we almost get like enough nutrition in our brain to even start to be able to comprehend what we need to do in order to fully recover and even visual, you know, think about full recovery. And so I think that what treatment centers can really do is help get a little bit of nutritional rehabilitation into somebody so that by the the time they leave there, their brain is working better and they can actually start to put the pieces together in their head of what they need to do in order to get fully recovered. Um, And I I think that that shouldn't be underestimated. That's a really important service. Mm -hmm. Was there something in particular when you said 12 years into your eating disorder, you suddenly said, I just wasted or lost 12 years and I'm going to turn it around now? Was there a a significant event? Was it a collection of of events? And finally, you just like, what what happened, Tabitha? It certainly wasn't one significant thing. It was, I was, I was on, I would say I was trying to decide to recover for four years. So um, I had the honeymoon period with my eating disorder, which lasted quite a while, three or four years, probably, although it wasn't all you know, it wasn't all lovely, but it was sort of where I was sustaining my eating disorder. And I was, felt that I was thriving in it and my body wasn't completely beaten up yet. So it hadn't started to hurt and my social life hadn't completely kicked the can, you know, but that it was all depleting over that first four years. And then there was the time where I was in my eating disorder and I was beginning to feel very unhappy in it, but I was still, keeping going with it and you know and then the last four years I was desperately miserable I was hating every day of my life I had a horrendous exercise compulsion and a horrendous movement compulsion I had absolutely no social life I was exhausted my body was exhausted and most of all I was mentally very depleted by my obsessive thoughts and compulsions and rigidity and all of the things like I hated my head. It never let up the thoughts, the thoughts of food drove me almost crazy. Maybe I was crazy. Um, And so for four years every day, because I was also in a, a binge restrict exercise cycle you know I would binge heavily every evening and then get up and exercise and not eat all day and all that stuff and so for four years every day when I went to bed I said I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this again tomorrow I'm not doing this again tomorrow I'm not going running tomorrow like and for four years every morning I got up and then went running and nothing changed and I was hating it and so it was it was that sort of prolonged being miserable that took me to the point of just like 
I'm either going to change this or I'm going to kill myself. Like it, it that was the ultimatum I gave myself. I was that unhappy. And a large driver of that was I was at the age where my friends from school were getting married and having children. And I had never even dated anybody yet because it's really difficult to date somebody when you can't sit down, let alone eat. So, <laughs> and it was, it was really that social part was what was making me more depressed and miserable and unhappy. Um, and so it was just that all piling up really over time that led me to the, it was no single event the that really sort of changed anything it was just that that build up over time and so it was it was a decision that I've been trying to make for four years that finally I I actually made yeah and it it sometimes takes that long sometimes it takes even longer and I also want to point out that suicide unfortunately is not uncommon not with eating disorders and I I also from where I was and how unhappy I was. I really was at that point where I thought, I can't envision this being the rest of my life. I don't want this to be the rest of my life. And so I can also say it's I find it entirely understandable. I remember when I was home um, and my father woke up once in the middle of the night and he heard me in my bedroom crying. And he came in and he said, what's the matter? And I said, dad, I'm 20 years old and I'm too young to be this tired. Like Tabitha, I was, it was an exhaustion that I don't think I cared if I lived or died from my eating disorder. It was like you were talking about the voices in my head, which by the way, I was walking through the world and nobody knew the torture I was going through. And it's that dual life that is very, very exhausting. Now, everybody knew that I had an eating disorder because I was back home when all my friends were at college. Um, but nobody knew the, the level of exhaustion. I've had clients come into residential treatment and sometimes I just say to them, you know what you're going to do the first few days? You're just going to lay on the couch. And that's okay. They come in and they are so exhausted. I say to them, if you can feed yourself three meals, three snacks, and then get back on the couch, that's going to be the first few days. It's okay. It's exhausting. It also reminds me when I was, as I said, I had listened to some of your YouTube interviews. Forgive me. I don't know if this was an interview or, or just someone had asked you a question but the other thing that it takes from you is time with other people. And you and I had two, each had an experience. I had the opposite of what you had. So you were talking about the loss of a friend who passed away from cancer and you were in your eating disorder. And I, I'm not going to give away the story if, if you're okay talking about it. I had the exact opposite experience. And I use it all the time, which is my father died 15 years ago from brain cancer. And because I was recovered, I sat with him for the last three months of his life. I held his hand. I helped him when he was crying. Like 
it was, and, and I say this all the time, there was not an eating disorder behavior in the world that was going to stop my father from dying of brain cancer. But as a result, I could, I could be with my family. I could appropriately grieve. I could also allow in the love that people were bringing to my father's hospital room, like whether it was food or just hugs or whatever. You had a different experience, and and do you mind sharing it? No, absolutely, and that's really beautiful that you were you had that experience. Um, I had a friend who, um, she was a good, you know, probably twenty years or plus older than me, but just such a loving, wonderful person to me. It's one of those people that I often think, why was she always so lovely? To, like, why does she like me so much? You know, I will. I didn't have a lot, you don't have a lot to give to other people when you have an eating disorder, but she just, she never, that never seemed to bother her. She just gave, she just was very loving towards me and just a beautiful person, not to me, to so many others as well. And um, she uh, was diagnosed with, I guess, I think she was almost at stage three or four when she got diagnosed with breast cancer. And so it really was a bit of a, very fast decline and um you know she lived very close to me I'm talking a couple of blocks away lived very close and um she had an an end of life party should we call it um and it was it was at six o'clock in the evening and that was the same time as an exercise class I always went to on a on a Wednesday evening and I chose to go to the exercise class rather than her end of life party. And in my head at that time, that was a completely legitimate decision. That was just, it it almost didn't occur to me that that was not a normal thing to do. Um, It didn't bother me in the slightest at the time. And I think that one of the things that, especially for me, happens with my eating disorder is when your brain is justifying things, it's almost like my brain had blocked out that she could die. You know, it's almost like I didn't think it would happen. It just didn't seem like, and that's the way my brain made it okay. (laughs) The, the, oh, there'll be plenty of time. I can visit with her later, that sort of thing. And so um, that was on the Wednesday and she died on the Friday and I didn't see her and when she died, that did really upset me. That did really hit home for me. But still not in the way that it did after I recovered. After I recovered, that I, I had this sort of really, like years later, huge grief on set for her after she recovered. I think when she died on that Friday, you know, I was upset. I cried. I was, I was actually at work. I was holding down a, a job at the time. I didn't take any time off work. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I carried on working. I, I didn't even, you know, whereas when, after I'd recovered and I, I can't remember what sparked the memory of her in me, but something did, I was upset for a really long time and I took time off and I properly grieved for her, which, and a lot of that grief though was also guilt and um, what something I talk about and I've written about in blogs and things like that is what I call the recovery clusterfuck, which is when you actually start to feel again, that you actually start to be able to 
feel connections with people and you start to grieve all of the things that you missed when you had an eating disorder because it starts to actually be real to you and so that can be a really difficult time for people in recovery because you've got all of these emotions of grief and guilt and just the things that you missed out on I also didn't go to my best friend's wedding because I didn't want to take the time off going to the gym and I grieved that as well and I went through all of these things in in that time sort of just um, very early on in recovery which was very important for me and whilst it was very difficult and there's a lot of grief at the same time part of me was very excited that I was feeling the way that I was feeling because I knew that that meant that something had changed in my brain and that something was important that that had changed. You know, it's interesting. I also talk about, I don't remember four years of my life because that was the, the, when I was in the thick of my eating disorder. And I always say, it's not because I was partying. It's not because I was like, woo, woo, swinging from the chandeliers. I was in my head 24 hours a day. I was taking laxatives. I was exercising. I was counting calories. I was reading labels. I was and gratefully, and, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to say this because you just shared that beautiful, vulnerable story. I Gratefully, I remember every day almost of the last three months of my father's life and the three months after, because they were powerful. It was powerful for me as the only girl in the family, the youngest, to witness my mother as a widow. That was a powerful thing. And it was powerful for me to experience, I no longer have a father and what that meant to me. I no longer have a father in this physical world. I, I strongly believe he's with me. Those are really necessary emotions to have, all of it. And, and, I, and again, I apologize because you didn't have that experience, but I'm really grateful, Tabitha, that, that I cried as hard as I did. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even I think the painful parts of having emotions and, and it, it's not just having emotions because I had plenty of emotions when I had an eating disorder. Most of them were sort of anger and frustration and lots of different things. But I that's it, just the, the part of my brain. And I do believe that this is a biological aspect of it. When the brain thinks that resources are scarce, it sort of shuts down the social side that's not helpful. It's a bit dog eat dog if resources are scarce. And so you actually need that shut down and you need to be a bit all about me. And that's what happens when we have an eating disorder. We're very self-centered, honestly. And that's necessary though, if you think about it, your brain thinks that you're in an environment where resources are scarce. There's not enough food for everybody. So being self-centered is probably going to serve you well. Um, but coming out of that, actually that that mode that our brains go into is designed for apocalyptic times emergency times it's not the way we're supposed to function it's not the ideal way that humans are supposed to function we're supposed to function socially and so when that starts to kick in again when you actually get yourself enough out of energy deficit and out of your eating disorder for your brain to think oh well we're not in the apocalypse anymore and that can start to kick in again having not had it even the hardest sort of grief type emotions felt precious to me. Yeah. I'm wondering what prompted you. Um, I know, 
I know for me, um, I've been in the field for 15 to 20 years. I've always been open about having an eating disorder. I just thought you were supposed to. It's just, <laughs> I just thought everyone talked about it. Um, I am a talker, hence the podcast. I could talk about myself forever. Um, what is it that was happening for you that made you want to write all these books, do the blog, do the YouTube? I know for me, I'm just passionate. I'm so passionate to do debunk, is that the right word? Debunk myths of eating disorders. I'm also very honest. Like I, I don't hold anything back similar to you. I'm very compassionate. So, so I love talking about it. You did a lot of work to have it. How did all of this come about? Mostly frustration. Uh, it really, really, and it still does piss me off, but really pissed off with the field of eating disorders. Um, and for me, where most of that came from is eating disorders always being treated as a purely psychological issue when that's why I didn't go into treatment because I don't know why, but I always knew somehow that this was something biological going on with me, that it was this, that especially, and I think the reason that mostly came from my exercise compulsion, like I felt like what felt like this biologically based urge to I have to move as much as possible at all times it didn't make any sense to me but that's where I felt it I didn't feel like I was doing it for any reason like people would always say to me you do what why are you doing this to yourself this that and the other and I'd just be like to me it felt as like they were asking me why is your hair growing that color I'd be like it just that's what I feel I have to do and so I always felt that there was a biological base to it. And it always felt to me that when people with eating disorders are immediately put in some sort of therapy or are being told that, well, you, you have to have trauma somewhere. Where's your trauma? Cause that's what people were saying to me. Well, you must have trauma. And I'd be like, I had a great childhood. Like, honestly, if you, if you call my mum telling me that I wasn't allowed to watch Baywatch at age 12 because she thought it wasn't appropriate trauma, then sure, fine, then my mum was abusive. But apart from that, I really can't put my finger on anything. And so it annoyed me. It would really annoy me. And that sort of frustration, I just felt that so there, were, there had to be a lot more people like me who weren't going into treatment because they didn't want to be psychoanalyzed to death because they knew it would be a waste of time and that they knew that there was something else that needed that, you know, it's not to say that action didn't need to be taken and that some sort of professional intervention couldn't be helpful, but not that type. Um, and so that's what really led me to just really talking about the biological aspects of it. And that's what really actually led me to talk about a lot about how I recovered because it was considered so out there at the time that I recovered without talking to a therapist ever in my life. And I thought like, I know I'm not the only one. I just think that most people recover on their own and then don't talk about it. And so they're not, they're not put in the statistics, so to speak. And it also annoyed me that, you know, there'll be all these statistics about people with eating disorders and how people with eating disorders recover and what people with eating disorders are like. But then people like me were not in those statistics because we never went to therapy and you actually have to be registered and in therapy to be in the statistics. Is there something, let me, let me take a step back. 
How do you think the field is doing now? How do you think treatment is now? You're, you've got a lot of people that are reaching out to you, telling, the, telling you about positive experiences and not so positive experiences. How do you think treatment is today? I think it's changing somewhat, but it's not coming top down. It's going bottom up. The reason it's changing is because we now have, we have all of this, all these ways to communicate with each other globally. And so people are going to their treatment providers and saying, I want to do this unrestricted eating thing. I'm going to do this unrestricted eating thing. And then treatment providers are either going to lose clients or they're going to actually change. And so it's, that's where it comes ground up. It's definitely not coming top down. And I think a lot of, especially in the larger treatment centers, there's been very little change and there's a little rigidity there. But I also have consultations a lot of the time with people who work in treatment centers who are trying to make change, you know, like um, individual um, employed therapists or dietitians that are sitting there saying like, no one's listening to me, but I know that this isn't, you know, I know that this isn't right the way that we're doing this. And, and so there's people now within the treatment centers that work in them that are also listening to clients. And I think that that's the biggest change. And I think that also when I was, had an eating disorder in, in recovery, if you had an eating disorder, like you were just kind of crazy and nobody was going to listen to you. What did you know? Whereas now I, I do think that's changing is being recognized that people with eating disorders are not just hysterical 15 year old girls. They're actually anybody. And we all look differently and sound differently and they're non-discriminating. And so starting to listen to people with eating disorders that have recovered and are giving feedback as to what was helpful and what was not helpful. Uh, it's difficult because you have to be in a certain place in your recovery to be able to be honest about things you know that that's why it's difficult so I say listen to people with eating disorders but I'm like yeah I'm not that one <laughs> like, you know, because <laughs> if you listen to that one she's just going to tell you to feed her celery sticks all day and that's what she wants you know so it's different it's difficult you do have to discriminate and but there is a theme that when somebody is actually properly in recovery and wants to recover that they'll tell you most of the time I'm actually really hungry <laughs> yeah what are you are you noticing things i'm going to use the word term picking up and that's not really the way i want to say it but in your recovery coaching have you noticed since the pandemic people are struggling more people are reaching out to you more for services or have you not noticed anything i, I don't yeah. think i've noticed any change um mm -hmm. but i think that for me things like it's always been a bit different than what is considered the normal for uh, the eating disorder field. So for example, for me, I've always had around 50, 50 male and female clients, which is skewed when you look at what other treatment providers might provide you with. But I think that's probably a lot to do with my personality and the type of person who gravitates towards me. I felt that a lot of the time men, just can't see themselves in eating disorder treatment because it's all butterflies and pink and purple. Um, whereas I'm not butterflies and pink and purple. So I feel that if a guy is going to seek treatment, they're more likely to seek treatment from somebody like me than the traditional eating disorder treatment services. And that's another thing that annoys me because I do firmly believe it is 50, 50. I don't think that um, females get eating disorders any more than males do. Um, however, because 
the guys don't go and get into the treatment system, their numbers aren't counted. And therefore, the statistics come out that women get eating disorders more than men, which further stigmatizes men and stops them coming forward into treatment. Um, And so I, I feel like my experience in the eating disorder treatment field looks a little bit different anyway. I've always been 100% virtual in my coaching as well. And so that that barrier has never been there. And so I that's not something that's necessarily changed um, for the pandemic for me either. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for so long, men didn't come into treatment because there was only one program for men in the country, one or two, which right there, what is that saying to men? Um, Just now, programs are allowing, and I'm going to use that word, men, transgender, you know, you know, all the, it's, it's literally, but what I want to say is, thank God, thank God that movement is finally coming. Um, but there were not enough resources for men, which makes it look like not a lot of men have eating disorders. Not the case. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful. I'm wondering if you could tell people a little bit about the books that you've written, because you've also written a number of books. You've done a lot of work, Tabitha. Yeah. Um, I wrote a book called Love Fat, which was just kind of actually my bio of my eating disorder recovery. And that one, I'm always like, read that one last, if at all. Like that, that's not necessarily a recovery guide of any sorts. It's just love from me. The, my, the most important book, I think, is Rehabilitate, Rewire, Recover. And that thing is a brick. Like, it's huge. And it was a complete headache to write. It was stressful. But it was just me trying to get everything that was in my head that I'd learned from working with so many people in recovery and really as as a sort of recovery resource for people. Um, And then after that, I wrote a book called Neural Rewiring for Eating Disorder Recovery. Now, Rehabilitate, Rewire, Recover does have a ton of neural rewiring stuff in it, but it just seemed that people wanted more of the neural rewiring stuff. So I wrote a book that was really like giving more specific, like rewiring um, negative body image, rewiring fear foods, like specifically talking about these categories of things people ask me about a lot and the neural rewiring examples for those. Um, and then after that last year, I wrote a book called Fear of Weight Gain. I actually only just published that. Um, and that is specifically talking about belief systems, really, because I think that the, one of the fundamental things about neural rewiring is that when we have an eating disorder, our actions and behaviors and it's what we pay attention to teaches our brain to fear weight gain hugely because we act in a way that's so avoidant of weight gain. You know, avoidance teaches the brain to fear things and so especially if you've had an eating disorder for five plus years if you've been acting consistently in a way that avoids anything that could lead to weight gain for such a long time your brain is going to have amassed all this information that weight gain must be this awful thing and it's that fear of weight gain that really is the fundamental thing to rewire if we want our brains to stop um, giving us all these feelings of guilt and shame and disgust and that's all of those emotional responses of the brain trying to steer you away from weight gain because it's afraid of weight gain. And negative body image, I see it as a product of fear of weight gain as well. And so I also wrote that book, not just for people with eating disorders, but I do believe that everybody in our culture, because we have a cultural fear of weight gain, 
I believe that everybody in our culture has some level of fear of weight gain that negatively influences their lives and negatively influences the relationship with their body. And so that's why I wrote a book specifically about fear of weight gain. And then that book is specifically how to rewire fear of weight gain. Um, and now I just started, just started writing another one. It's because I was talking to a client and she so she was a client and I have, this is always a wonderful thing that happens. You have a client and then they doing really well. And then a year or so later, I'll get an email that's saying, I just wanted to let you know I'm pregnant. And they're so happy because they didn't think their body would ever recover enough to get pregnant. And everybody's deliriously happy. And I'm like, yay. And then I'm like, oh, fuck. Because always what happens is the pregnancy is always fine. It's the bit afterwards Nobody, everybody underestimates how much breastfeeding puts somebody in energy deficit. And it's not just breastfeeding, it's all of the stress and extra stuff associated with looking after a newborn baby always puts people in energy deficit. And so I'm always like, oh, fuck, because it's like, yay, you're going to have a baby. That's great. But I just need you to know that as soon as that thing pops out, you are going to have to be on it because that is like prime time for relapse it just and it's not intentional at all it's just can you imagine I haven't had a baby but can you imagine how much that must take up completely all of your brain space and you can't think about anything else and so you're just running around trying to make this baby happy and feed it and do everything right and you are not paying attention to your energy needs and then you un without intention at all slip into energy deficit and then all hell breaks loose because your eating disorder genetics start firing off again and before you know it you're in a real, you're in a real problem place. And so I was, you know, I was just saying to her like this, it's really, and nobody talks about how much this is a thing for people that have recovered from eating disorders. You could have been in a strong recovery for 20 years. If you go and have a baby, that's going to be the time after having that baby that you're going to be most vulnerable. Um, and then I was, I just sort of said, well, somebody, somebody should write a book on it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I'm right now. So it's just, which is really funny because I've never had a kid. I'm never going to have kids. And I'm writing a book about pregnancy, which is not something I would ever in my whole life have imagined that I'd be writing on this topic. But it's specifically about, you know, for people who have recovered from an eating disorder and just what they need to put in place for that six to 12 months after they have a baby to keep themselves safe. I just had an episode come out, I believe it was two weeks ago, Jaren Soloff, and she talks about um, eating disorders and pregnancy. She also talks a lot about postpartum depression and how that impacts, you know, people with, especially with, with histories of eating disorders. You're absolutely right, Tabitha. It is not talked about enough. Right. And I think everybody sort of thinks of the pregnancy time it, like the pregnancy is usually fine and that's because we have a culture that's that is more permissive about women eating when they're pregnant it's okay it's the bit after when they're on mum's net or instagram or whatever and you've got all this lose the baby weight crap it's just it's always that you know the pregnancy bit is usually where people and, and actually, I've known people that are in like a precarious recovery, I'd put it, and they've got pregnant. And I've kind of been like, mm. and the actual pregnancy bit, they've done really well because in their head, it's now OK to eat that restriction because they're pregnant. So the pregnancy bit tends to be, I think it almost lulls everybody into a false sense of security. 
they're doing great in pregnancy. They've done really great with weight gain in pregnancy. And then it's, it's the after bit. That's really when the shit tends to hit the fan. Yeah. I, I do think it's, it's funny that you were like, somebody asked me about it and you thought, Oh God, you know, Oh crap, excuse me, whatever. Got to write a book about it. So (laughs) no, I know because it's really inconvenient writing books. (laughs) It really takes a ton of time and it stresses me out. I don't know how people do it. No, never do I. I have had so many guests on that have authored books and what they say about the process of writing a book, I just can't imagine doing it. It's absolutely insane. And it doesn't make any money either. So like, that's a complete misconception. Um, so it's just like, it's, I don't know why, but it is that sort of thing. I saw the people that write books have told you once that idea is there, it just does not let up. And it's like ticking on the side of your head. It's like a little woodpecker pecking on the side of your brain until you just write the damn thing. And so that's the reason I write books. It's because it annoys me until I do it. And then it's just, it's not because I love writing books. It's to get away from that annoying thought. <laughs> <laughs> I hate writing books. Like I have time for that. Tabitha, my goodness. This has been such a lovely conversation. We are going to have to start winding down in a moment. Before we end, and before I ask you your final question, which has nothing to do with eating disorders, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd want to share? Anything you just wanted to say before we before we wind down? I can't really think of anything in particular. I imagine that what I always do like to say is if you're listening to this and you're not in recovery or you are pretending to be in recovery, which is you listening to this and you're telling people I'm in recovery, but really you're actually restricting as much as you can and still doing compulsive movement and still engaging in eating disorder behaviors, then I just always like to remind people that you can listen to as many recovery podcasts and you can watch all the YouTubes and you can read all the blogs, but unless you actually change your behaviors, you're not in recovery and nothing's going to change for you. And so while getting information is, is great, taking action is what's going to get you recovered. You know, you won't listen to a podcast like this and it's not just going to happen to you. You actually do have to now get up and go and eat and start making those changes that feel really scary. That's exactly right. Welcome to the beginning of recovery, right? Tabitha, before I let you go, I do have to ask, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Eat the fucking food. There we go. Everybody, there it is. Eat the fucking food. Tabitha, I can't thank you enough. It has really been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, really good, really good to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with Recovered Professionals, and I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. 
You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. Thank you.